Hey, good evening there, kiddos. It is, what is it, October 9th already. Wow, Monday, October 9th, 2023. And uh, let's go ahead and keep going with our pattern reading. We're going to read John chapter 1. John chapter 1. What am I talking about? We're going to read John chapter 6. And I got to get to the ESB version here. You know what I'm gonna, I'm excited for? I'm excited for you kids to listen to all these chapters in John that are reading, and then the Holy Spirit speak to you about something that we read. That's how God works. You're gonna read His Word, and then the Holy Spirit's gonna remind you of something. When, Something comes up in your life, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this Bible verse. Oh, yep, I get it, Lord. And that's that's how it happens. Okay, John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. As a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denali, den, denari, denari worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in, this, in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a, into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, 
nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Hey kids, I just got to stop right here a second. So you remember when we do communion and Jesus, and we read about um, when he had the Last Supper with his disciples? And he said, this bread is my body that's broken for you. This whole last passage reminds me about what he reminds the disciples in that 
and when he tells us to, to do communion, that he is the living bread. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, back to verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's talking spiritually. Unless you eat his flesh into your spirit and drink his spiritual blood, you have no spiritual life in you. Jesus was not expecting people to go up and have people bite his arm, chew up his arm hair and his arm skin, and then suck on suck blood out of his arm. That's not what he what he was asking these people to do. Sorry that's really gross, but I just want to clarify that. It all has to do with the spiritual symbolism of what his his actual flesh did for our spirits and his actual blood did for our spirits and also our bodies and our souls did for all of us okay back to verse 54 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day that's the third time he said that what does that mean and i will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There's another verse we need to... There's some verses in here we need to remind ourselves of when we do communion, and what all this means. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his, of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense to this? At this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is where he's clarifying that I'm not, he's like, yes, I'm talking about what's going to happen to my flesh and what's going to happen to my blood, but it all has to do with the spirit, the spiritual aspect of what I'm going to do with my flesh. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, 
and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Kiddos, I'm sorry I did a little commentating here. I just want to make one more comment. Peter, he was, he was the guy who wasn't afraid to say anything. And I really like what he says here because it is so true. A bunch of disciples, after hearing all this talk about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, they're making no spiritual correlation to it. And they have no idea about Isaiah chapter 53, about, you know, his body was broken and his, his you know, by his wounds, they're healed and by their stripes and, you know, that the Messiah had to shed his blood and his body had to be broken for them to be delivered. But Jesus says, do you guys want to go away as well? I mean, are you going to go with them and believe something else? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, even if they sound kind of crazy and hard to accept sometimes. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And kids, I find myself saying this too. It's like sometimes you get frustrated or sick of hearing preaching or sick of hearing all the same Christian sayings over and over. And you start looking around and it's like, well, really not much else out there to believe in. All this stuff that the world throws at me is a big fat lie. And where else am I going to go? Okay. I'm still going to, I'm still going to believe. Even if it, even if it uh, is hard sometimes or it gets old or I feel like, well, I'll just tell you right now, kiddos, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to question and rehash your faith. That's just part of growing and maturing. And the world's going to throw a lot at you, and you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, that's a really good point. i got to figure this one out because this smooth operator just came along and said something that really shook my faith up. Now i got to figure out uh, an answer to that. So don't worry if you doubt. Don't worry if you ever get confused or if something sounds really odd and strange. Just ask God to help you out. Just say, Holy Spirit, you promised to lead me into all truth, so help me out here. Anyways, okay, enough, enough of Daddy talking. That's the end of John chapter 6. And I shall now read our book. Kingdom's Hope by Chuck Black, starting in chapter 8, kind of at a super low point here. Man, chapter 7, I, I'm going to just say that was an epic chapter. That was like, I'm sure it's, I'm sure that chapter made the top 20 chapters of epic sloggy stories we've read together over the years. Maybe top 10, no, I'm going to say top 15, maybe even top 10. But definitely top 20, no doubt. That was an epic chapter. Okay, chapter 8, Kurgon's Captives. Kurgon left one of his top men in Chessington to rule the city and surrounding areas for him. Although nearly all of the inhabitants of Chessington were sent on the march to Daedalon, Kurgan allowed a handful to remain in the city as subjects of his newly established lord. Most of these were older people that Kurgan did not think would survive the journey. Anyone with any influence or authority was taken, and thus Leonad, Tess, and Audric found themselves on a trek into bondage once again. The march to Daedalon was arduous, Although the train itself was not difficult, harsh weather during the three-week journey took a tremendous toll on the un unsheltered people. Hard rains and cold nights resulted in many illnesses and even some deaths. Even though enslavement lay within the walls of Daedalon, 
the people were relieved to finally arrive at the end of their torturous voyage. The city of Daedalon was an incredible sight to behold. In all of his days, Leonid had never seen such a magnificent, magnificent feat of design and construction. A formidable wall encompassed the entire city, which straddled the river that supplied fresh water to the inhabitants. Both inside and outside the wall, lush vegetation embraced the monolithic stone structure. Vibrant gardens adorned the city streets, squares, and palace. Were it not for the rule of Kurgan and the plight of the slaves, Daedalon would have appeared to be a paradise. Once within the walls, the people were taken to a servant preparation area. The men were divided from the women and children, and Leonid was troubled at the thought of not being able to protect Tess. He reminded himself that she was as tough as any knight he'd known. He would have to protect her, though. He would have to protect her through the training he had given her. These thoughts helped a little. Over the next week, slave auctions were held to sell the people off to the highest bidders. Kurgan profited greatly from the slave market. It was as beneficial as the taxes he collected, and his wealthy citizens loved to participate. Slaves were an integral part of the Kessens' economic, social, and labor structure. Of course, Kurgan reserved first choice for himself, and he chose Leonad, among others, to serve in the palace. Leonad wondered if he would ever see Tess or Audric again. The days became weeks, the weeks became months, and the months became a year. Though the bondage for the king's people was much more bearable than what they had experienced under Pharos and Nyland, they longed to be free and return to Chessington. Leonad knew that the king was aware of their predicament, and so he encouraged the people whenever he could. Leonad's service to Kurgon changed over the months. At first he was kept under close supervision and performed hard manual labor, but as he proved himself trustworthy, Kurgan's captain gave him more and more responsibility and freedom. One of his duties included organizing the purchases required to maintain palace operations. Through these contacts, Leonid learned that Tess had been sold to a wealthy widow who was sympathetic to young ladies up for sale in a city that was less than scrupulous in its treatment of slaves. Though he hadn't seen Tess since their arrival in the city, he was relieved that she was in a moderately safe environment. One day, Leonid was inspecting a number of carts loaded with produce that was about to be delivered to the palace. Two other palace servants accompanied him. The shop owner bragged incessantly about the quality of his produce Leonad was becoming, a, becoming annoyed with the man. You will not find produce, produce as fine as this in all of Daedalon, the shop owner, owner said with a smile as he followed Leonad through the inspection. A contract to sell goods to the palace was envied by most merchants. I'm sure your goods are top quality, Leonad said but I must inspect them thoroughly anyway. The shop was in the central part of Daedalon, called the Market, where the gentle sound of the river mixed with the daily routine of market activity. By night, the river's flow was a gentle, soothing lullaby to those near enough to hear it. Large trees and shrubs lined the streets and walkways, the market was clean and neat and a delightful place to conduct business. On a day like today, with the sun shining bright in the blue sky, the streets were teeming with activity. Leonid stepped around the shop owner to advance to the next cart and bumped into a finely dressed woman inspecting 
an intricate dining plate. The plate fell to the ground and shattered into a hundred pieces. Oh, I am so sorry, my lady, Leonid said as he knelt down to gather the broken pieces. He hoped that she was not a lady of importance in the city, for such an incident with a slave could be disastrous. You're going to pay for that, the shop owner screamed as he exited the shop. Leonette continued to work at gathering the pieces. The expense is mine, he said. The shop owner arrived at the scene red-faced and angry. How much was the dish? Leonette asked. The shop owner stated a price that Leonette knew was probably twice the value, but he reached for the palace money bag and hoped he'd, he could explain himself to Kurgan's treasury officer. Thank you, Lady Wellington. Leonette heard the shop owner say politely as he fumbled to open the bag. The woman paid the shop owner, and he disappeared back into his shop. Hardly daring to look the woman in the eye, Leonid thanked her. He knew she must be a prominent woman by the shop owner's response. Please forgive me, my lady, Leonid said and bowed. It's quite all right, young man, she said. Just be a little more careful when you're about your business. Her speech was refined and dignified. Tess, come along, she called into the shop. Leonad nearly fell over at the mention of Tess's name. He raised himself up and turned to see Tess exiting the same shop. His heart leaped within his chest at seeing her, for it had been over a year since they were last together. She was dressed in fine clothing and looked like a lady of stature herself. She stopped mid-stride, and astonishment overcame her. Her eyes widened, and her mouth parted slightly, but quickly transformed into a jubilant smile. Leonad! she exclaimed and ran to him. They embraced, and Leonid felt true joy in his heart for the first time since their enslavement. Somehow he knew it was true for Tess as well. They stepped back from one another as if to convince themselves that they were truly together again, even if it was for just a moment. Tess, is it really you? Leonid said with wonder. He never would have believed that the freckle-faced little girl of Mankin would grow up to be the lovely, refined woman that stood before him. So this is the young man you spoke of so glowingly, Lady Wellington said. Lady Wellington, please meet Sir Leonid of Chessington. Tess said with pride and dignity in her voice. Leonid bowed a second time to Lady Wellington and was amazed at how polished Tess's speech had become. I am pleased to meet you, Sir Leonid, Lady Wellington said. The pleasure is mine, my lady, Leonid said as he finished bowing. I have some unfinished business in the shop across the street. Tess, join me after a bit. Yes, my lady, she said with a smile that radiated delight and appreciation. Leonid turned to one of the other servants and asked him to finish the inspection for him. Tess put her arm through Leonid's. Shall we take a walk, sir? she asked sweetly. Leonid smiled and led them toward a walkway that skirted the river. It was odd for him to see his sword-fighting companion as a poised and dignified young lady. It was apparent that Lady Wellington had given Tess what Leonid and his father never could. His feelings and his words felt awkward to him at first. It was like getting to know her for the first time. Enslavement has suited you well, sunshine, he said. She dropped her smile. 
too well, Leonad. Look at me. Although I am a servant at her estate, Lady Wellington treats us more like daughters than slaves. I am spoiled and feel guilty when I see the plight of our people. It is difficult for me to come to the market like this, but Lady Wellington occasionally insists. It has been months since my last visit. Leonad placed his hand on Tess's hand that held his arm. Of all people, Tess, you should not feel guilty about being treated well, and I am glad you came to the market today. She smiled, but Leonad knew that the words would not change her feelings. Have you heard anything of Audric? he asked. No, I have not. I hope he is well. Some of the people are serving under difficult masters. Yes, I know. With my new responsibilities at the palace, I have been able to contact many more of the people. For most, the bondage weighs heavily on them. Tess looked down and away. I'm sorry, Tess. I didn't mean to. It's all right. I know what's happening here. I would leave in an instant if given the chance, she said defiantly. How long will the king leave us here, Leonad? The time is not far off, Tess. They walked and soaked up every moment they had together, for their next visit might be months away, if ever. On their return, Leonad thanked Lady Wellington for allowing them time together and for affording Tess a safe haven in the midst of captivity. It was a day that both Leonad and Tess cherished for weeks to come. Chapter 9 Into the Jaws of Dragomoth Kurgan continued to prosper and conquer. He became powerful in the region and in all of Erethre. As Kurgan's fame and influence grew, Leonad observed, so did his pride. With no force strong enough to penetrate the great city, Kurgan believed the title of king was his to take. The lesser lords could not dispute him. They either vowed their allegiance or were overthrown. Kurgan ordained one day to confirm his crown. The palace grounds were prepared and the boulevards were lined with all the inhabitants of the city. When the palace trumpet sounded, every man, woman, and child was to bow to demonstrate allegiance to Kurgan as the king of Erethre. It was a day of pomp and ceremony in the palace, but for one man, it was a day of intense sorrow. Leonad knew he could not kneel, and he was willing to accept whatever consequences fell upon him. What saddened his heart was that others would be forced to accept the same fate or compromise their convictions because of the fear that surely gripped them. Who will be strong and die? Who will be weak and live? He wondered. Oh, Tess, that I could spare you this day. Kurgan's guards were placed throughout the mass of people to maintain order and to ensure submission. Kurgan stepped onto the high balcony of his palace, which overlooked his great city, and the trumpets blew. The mass of people knelt in unison before the self-proclaimed king. All the people except three. One second, kiddos, I gotta check something. Okay. All the people except three. Kneel down, Tess, Lady Wellington exclaimed. I am sorry, milady, I cannot. There is only one king of Erethre, 
and I have already sworn my allegiance to him. This is something I cannot protect you from, Tess. Please kneel, Lady Wellington said softly. Tess looked kindly on Lady Wellington. Thank you for all that you have done for me, Lady Wellington. Kneel or you will die, an approaching guard shouted. Within a short time, Leonid, Tess, and Audric were brought before Kurgan. It is good to see you, old friend, Leonid said quietly to Audric as they waited for Kurgan to approach them. Leonid could tell by Audric's tattered clothing that his captivity had been difficult. Audric grinned lightheartedly. And you, my friends, he nodded. Leonid's respect for Audric had grown tremendously over the years. He was a man of intense loyalty and convictions, two qualities Leonid found lacking in most men. The forthcoming adversity seemed easier to bear, knowing that Audric and Tess were by his side. From the days of Pharos until now, they had been Leonid's faithful companions and supporters. Their devotion to the king had been steady and sure through the years. They were true knights of the king as well. Standing tall, the three of them now faced certain death, fortifying Kurgan's claim to be king of Rethtray. Kurgan left his balcony and approached them, anger burning in his eyes. He was a distinguished-looking man with a beard that held streaks of gray. He carried, carried himself with an authority that demanded submission from all of his subjects, almost all. At his approach, the four guards surrounding Leonid, Tess, and Audric saluted. Kurgan stopped before them with his chin raised slightly. I am told that the three of you have refused to kneel and swear your allegiance to me as king, Kurgan said with restrained anger in his voice. He stepped closer to Leonid. You have been a faithful servant for some time now. You have earned my trust. To show you that I am a merciful king, I will allow you and these other two to kneel now so that you may live. Lord Kurgan, Leonid said boldly, though you have given us a hundred chances, though you give us a hundred chances, we will not kneel before you to swear our allegiance to you as king. Kurgan's face turned red. Such defiance was not thought possible in this, in his city. We have sworn our allegiance to the one true king of Rethtray, Leonid continued. There is not, nor ever will be another. Then you will die, and your king can do nothing to save you. You are mistaken, Lord, Lord Kurgan. Our king is more than able to save us, Leonid said. Though, should he choose not to, we are prepared to die as knights of the true king of Arethtray. Guards, take them to the Vale of the Dragons, Kurgan commanded, and spread fresh meat upon the tree line to entice the dragomoths. The guards brutishly escorted the three of them out of the presence of Kurgan. Though they had not seen the veil of the dragons, they knew what cruel death lay before them. The northern wall of Daedalon was higher than the other walls and bordered a large, densely forested valley. No man had ever traveled the valley, for it was inhabited by the ferocious dragomoths. Kurgan utilized these beasts to his benefit. A small clearing in the valley vegetation near the wall provided a natural arena for him to feed his enemies 
to the Dragomoths. Two extension walls were built that joined the main city wall to eliminate the possibility of escape. There was no need to bind the victims. Their only choice was to await their fate in the clearing or venture past the valley tree line into the habitat of the Dragomoth, an unthinkable prospect. Leonad, Tess, and Audric were forced to don clothing that was splattered with the blood of goats. Six guards then led them to the base of the north wall, where a large iron door was the only barrier between them and the jaws of the Dragomoths. You have seen these Dragomoths? Leonad asked Audric. No, I have only been told of them. Tell us, Leonad said. Audric looked sympathetically at Tess. I am afraid, Audric, but I am not a coward. She said, we need to know what we are facing. He nodded. It is said that the Dragomoth can smell as well as a dog. Thus our clothing. Most of them are half again as tall as a man, but some are said to be twice that size. They run faster than a man, but slower than a horse. Their claws are long and their teeth are sharp. And... Yes, Leonid said. And it is said that they breathe fire. Fire? Leonid asked. Audric raised an eyebrow and tilted his head slightly to affirm his own doubt. Tessa's eyes widened and they all fell silent. Well, I can see why the antelope are leaping to their deaths back in the Red Canyon, Tess said. Do you know any weaknesses we can exploit? Audric crossed his muscular arms and took a deep breath. It is said that they can only see movement but without weapons and with our clothes splattered in blood. I don't see how this is going to help us much. Maybe not, but it's something, Tess said. Just then a guard on horseback arrived at the gate with two slabs of fresh meat dangling from each side of his saddle. His face was white with fear. One of the guards looked through a small hole in the clearing. All clear, he shouted. Two other guards removed the iron lock and opened the doors just far enough for the guard on horseback to exit. Ride fast, Garth, and you'll make it, said one of the guards as he slapped the horse's back end. The rider was gone in a bolt and the doors were closed and locked behind him. He was back at the door a moment later. The guards opened the door and let their terrified comrade and his horse, minus the slabs of meat, back into the city. The gate guards signaled for the other guards to bring the prisoners to the gate. As they passed, the gate guard leaned close to Leonad's ear and spoke softly. Some of the riders did not make it back from their meat drops. You may find a sword or two near the tree line if you dare to venture that close to the abode of the Dragomoths. Leonad nodded his thanks, and the guards pushed them into the Vale of the Dragons. Clean white bones were scattered throughout the clearing, which was quite wide. Two walls extended from the city wall well into the dense vegetation of the valley. Leonad looked up the enormous city wall and saw the tiny figure of Kurgan amidst, amidst a throne of onlookers. Leonad noticed that one slab of meat had been dropped near the tree line, which was a far distance from the city wall. The only protection was an occasional outcropping of rocks. The second slab of meat lay near the largest outcropping. They moved quickly but cautiously toward the rock formation. 
Once there, Leonid turned and held out his hand to Audric and Tess. It is an honor to face death in the company of two gallant knights such as you. Audric and Tess took his handshake and nodded. The king reigns, Leonid said. The king reigns, they replied. A hideous screech filled the air. Leonad had heard that sound only once before in the Red Canyon. Chills flowed up his spine. I want you to wait here, he said. What are you doing? Tess asked with a look of concern on her face. Wait here, I'll be back. Leonad grabbed the fresh meat and ran toward the tree line. Another screech, much closer than the first, filled the air. Leonad scanned the ground as he ran and kept a watchful eye on the distant trees ahead. Finally, he reached the other slab of meat near the tree line. He dropped his cargo and fervently searched the ground. He found a number of horses' bones mixed with those of men. Another terrifying screech blasted from the trees, and Leonad knew that a dragomoth was approaching fast. He moved a pile of bones. Success! A rusted sword lay beneath. Leonad grabbed the sword and started his run back to the boulders. Off to his right, he spotted the hilt of a second sword, almost covered in dirt. He chanced a detour to retrieve the second sword, though he knew the extra time might cost him. The thick vegetation of the tree line moved and parted. A dragomoth leapt through the opening and screeched the cry of a merciless predator. Leonid froze with his hand on the hilt of the buried sword and his eye on the terrifying dragomoth. The dragomoth was slender and looked built for speed. The upper and lower jaws were long and lined with razor-sharp teeth. Yellow, cat-like eyes gave the creature its limited sight. The base of the head terminated smoothly into a long neck that seemed to have an extra degree of motion at a joint one-third of the way toward the body. Short, powerful arms with long, ripping claws gave the dragomoth added weaponry to use against its prey. Longer, muscular, hind legs supported the body and gave it incredible speed for a creature of, its, of this size. Its final weapon was a long, powerful, and flexible tail. From head to tail, the dragomoth's skin was lizard-like and colored in streaks of yellow and dark brown. And kiddos, there's a picture here in the book, and it looks very similar to like a velociraptor. Just think like, uh, oh, what's the movie? Um, oh, you know the movie I'm thinking of. It's a Velociraptor, only in this book, with a picture drawn. Okay. The dragomoth paused and licked the air with its forked tongue, smelling the fresh meat. It moved toward the meat and swallowed one slab whole. While it was occupied with its meal, Leonad resumed his sprint back to his companions at the boulders. The dragomoth finished the second slab of meat and resumed its hunt for more. Its eyes caught Leonad's movement, and it screeched before pursuing its next prey. Other dragomoths screeched from the valley trees, drawn by the hunt of the first. The distance to the rock formation was too far, and Leonad knew he wouldn't make it in time. He threw one of the swords as far toward his companions as possible and turned to face the beast. It was a terrifying sight to see such a voracious beast charging at him.
Audric ran to gather the other sword, but he could not reach Leonette in time. It was a hopeless moment, or so it seemed. The tree line moved again, but this time no Dragomoth emerged. Instead, a man on a white horse charged into the clearing and raced toward the attacking Dragomoth. Stunned, Leonad simply readied his sword. The man covered the distance to the Dragomoth quickly, gleaming sword in hand. The Dragomoth, intent only on Leonad, leapt into the air to pounce. The gallant man on horseback reached him before he landed. Leonad dove to the side as the rider made one quick power cut across the neck of the Dragomoth and severed its head. Its body landed with an empty thud in a limp pile where Leonad once stood. Sounds of exclamation filtered down from the people watching on the city wall. The man turned his horse and faced Leonad. There was something familiar about him. Leonid felt he was in the presence of the king again, but he was not the king. The man was young and possessed the perfect form of a knight's knight. His brow was noble and his eyes burned like fire. His sword was truly magnificent, nearly identical to another that Leonid had once seen. Who could this be? Then Leonad remembered the traveler who had helped him and Tess many years ago in the Terra Hills mountain range when they were starving. Was this the same man? The man reached out his arm. Leonad recovered himself and grabbed hold as the man lifted him to the back of his horse. A moment later, they were back at the rocky outcropping with Audric and Tess. They dismounted, and the man drew another sword to hand to Tess. Now all were armed. The horse galloped to the city wall and trotted back and forth along its length, waiting for the call of his master. Two dragomoths emerged from the tree line and descended on the fallen creature's headless body. The gallant man turned to face Leonad, Tess, and Audric. His countenance was determined, but he evoked a strange peace that passed on to Leonad, and he was sure to Tess and Audric as well. Somehow, Leonad knew they would make it through. There was no time to discover who the man was. They just knew that he had the skill, the wisdom, and the power to defeat these vicious creatures. Attack the Dragomoths in teams of two, the man commanded. One distracts him while the other strikes. Aim just below the jointed neck. If that is not possible, its heart is just behind its forelegs. Another Dragomoth parted the tree line and made straight for the boulders. Is there fire? Leonad asked. There is no fire, but it will spit a deadly acid-like poison once it realizes you are attacking it. Stay clear of the direction of the mouth. The approaching Dragomoth was larger than the other three. Its screech was lower and even more threatening than the others. It reached the rock formation and paused, perhaps deciding which prey to devour first. The stranger positioned himself directly in front of the dragomoth, fearing, I'm sorry, fearless and confident. His stature emanated power. The creature snapped and swiped at the stranger with one of its claws. The stranger's sword flew with blinding speed and severed the form of the, of the creature. It screeched an ear-piercing cry and a stream of yellow fluid burst from its mouth. Its aim was poor, and the fluid splattered on the boulders behind him. Smoke rose from the boulders where the fluid landed.
Leonid ran to the creature's side and plunged his sword deep into the body just aft of the forearms. The dragomoth convulsed, and, a tail, and its tail whipped and struck Leonid across his side. Leonid slammed into a rock and struggled to regain his breath. The creature fell to the ground, writhing momentarily before becoming still in death. The cries of the dying dragomoth drew the attention of the other two beasts, who quickly advanced on their four brave, on the four brave warriors. Audric took up a position to fight the first one, and the stranger joined him while Tess positioned herself to face the next creature. Leonid stood to help Tess and felt an intense burning inside his chest. The pain was excruciating. Once again, sounds of astonishment were heard from the crowd on the wall above, for no man or team of men had ever faced a dragomoth and lived, not even with weapons. Leonid drew the dragomoth's attention away from Tess, for he knew that the strike of his sword was now weak. The dragomoth screeched and poised itself to pounce, Tess moved in quickly from the left and struck the creature with the deadly edge of her sword, but it moved at the last instant, and her blade struck the bony joint of the neck. Tess fell below the creature as it recoiled and screeched in anger. A stream of yellowish poison flew straight at Leonad. He fell to the ground and rolled, barely escaping the deadly fluid. Tess rolled to avoid the sharp claws of the powerful hind legs. The creature lowered its head to capture Tess in its jaws. She rolled to her knees and thrust her sword past the deadly jaws and deep into its throat. The dragomoth clamped down on the sword, nearly taking Tess's arm with it. The blade penetrated clear through the neck. The dragomoth could not screech or spit as it clawed at the weapon with its front claws. Leonid tried to stand, but the broken ribs in his chest made it impossible. Tess, here! He called and threw his sword toward her. She grabbed the sword and plunged it deep into the heart of the flailing dragomoth. The creature collapsed to the ground, dead. A moment later, Audric and the stranger killed the remaining creature. Four dragomoths lay dead in the clearing, and four warriors stood ready for more. Leonad! Kurgan shouted down from the lofty heights of the wall. Surely your king has delivered you. Return to the gate, for no man, common or noble, can do what I have seen here today. The four quickly made their way to the gate, and the stranger mounted his horse. Who are you, sir? Leonid asked. The man looked at Leonid warmly. I am a man from a distant land. The stranger's horse reared, and then he bolted straight for the trees. There was no fear, no hesitation, as he rode into the Vale of Dragons. He was like no other man the kingdom had ever seen. And that's the end of chapter 9, kiddos. Wow, pretty cool, huh? That was a little bit on the epic side, too, I gotta say. Oh, and that's the end of my 60 minutes. Love you, kiddos. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Have a good night.